Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Previously in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy has been showing us that the believer can be absolutely sure of his eternal salvation. Today we'll continue to see that the believer is eternally secure because he is reconciled in Christ. In chapter 5, I am going to deal with verse number 10 tonight, but I would like us to read from verse number 1 uh, down to verse number 10. Follow with me, please, as I read. He says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation work of patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. And hope make of not a shame, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. The mere fact that the Apostle Paul has now mentioned the love of God, the Apostle Paul now begins to develop that doctrine of the love of God for us in our pre-conversion state. So he says now in verse number 6, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet for adventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Paul can't stop there, because Paul uh, 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 a running epistle. One thought leads to another. And so he adds now in verse number 9, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. And then we come to our text in verse number 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled we shall be saved by his life. Last time I preached to you and much more. This is much more too. Okay. Verse number 10. Gives us what I call Paul's second deduction. That the Apostle Paul extracts from this great doctrine he's been dealing with. Remember the doctrine the Apostle Paul is dealing with in this passage. Has to do with God's pre-conversion love for us. That before we were saved. He put his love towards us. This is what Paul is trying to get us to understand. So Paul's problem is this. If we can really believe that God loved us in our pre-conversion state and God brought us to the whole pattern where we were justified and we are reconciled, how is it conceivable that that same God would now let us go and be lost? This is what Paul can't comprehend. To the Apostle Paul, this is so irrational God will be so capricious in how he deals with us that Paul cannot fathom that the believers do not understand how secure they are in Christ. I have said this. It is, you'll be hard-pressed to find any other passage of Scripture where Paul so carefully and so extensively treats this whole matter of the eternal security of the believer. Now, I've been asking myself the question, 
why does Paul treat it so thoroughly for the Christian? I mean, could he not have just made it in one statement and, and that ends the conclusion? Well, the question is that there are many other passages of Scripture that confirm that, but believers still have doubts. So Paul spent this length of time for several reasons. Number one, I believe that why Paul spends such extensive treatment of this subject is because this is an incredible doctrine to really believe. You know why? We are so unfaithful. We find, we don't, we don't, we just, you know, we, we love people depending on how they treat us. We respond to people how they respond to us. So we can't understand a God that can love us so much that no matter how we treat him, he still loves us. It's a very, very difficult doctrine to hold to. Because from the time we were born until we die, we are living in a meritorious society. It's all about what we do and how we ingratiate ourselves into the favor of other people. We cannot comprehend the gratuitous love of God that there was nothing in us save God's sovereign grace to choose us. We don't understand that. Very difficult. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul wants us to understand this is not a matter of human effort. This is not a matter of being, doing meritorious things to ingratiate ourselves into God's love. God loved us even before we were converted. See? This is the profound truth that Paul is trying to get across. And because it's such an incredible doctrine to believe, he has to keep hammering it and hammering it and hoping something would click. The second reason I believe the Apostle Paul spent so much time on this subject because I think the Apostle Paul understands that it is one of the central areas of satanic attack. Could I tell you something about the enemy that you don't know? He's a killjoy. Now remember, he once lived in the presence of God. He once enjoyed all that we can enjoy. He envies us. That we are in a position where God's love is towards us. Now he, you remember that he made a, a coup. A cabal. Term. Okay. You hear it on the news, right? <laughs> and he of course uh, led a rebellion. And he was kicked out and never given a chance to be restored. But here's man who went against God and God said I can give man a second chance. He can't understand that. And he is envious of you and me, and therefore he must keep us in a position where we are constantly doubting where we stand with God. You remember that even when he was dealing with the temptations in the book of Matthew chapter 4, he came to Jesus, if thou be the son of God. Now can you imagine him questioning Christ? Are you the son of God? If you're the son of God, do this, do this, do the X. It is one of the master strategic plans of him. To cause us to question where we stand with God. Because as long as we question where we are. This brings us to the next point. He wants to rob the believer of his joy. And security of being in an eternal condition. Where he is totally safe in Christ. There's nothing like a rejected lover. There's nothing like a person who has been rejected. You look at the life of Cain, and you see that one of the reasons why Cain went to, wanted to kill Abel is because Abel was accepted, but Cain was rejected. And that caused that strife. See? God has accepted us. He's rejected the enemy, and the enemy can't bear to think that God has accepted but rejected him. So we're in a war 
And part of that war is to keep us in a constant state where we are not too sure where we stand before God. Could I say something that might shock you? If we really believe without a single doubt that we were eternally secure, we'd be the happiest people on planet earth. Serious. Can you, can, you, can you ever imagine if you really get hold of it that you belong to God eternally and you're his child? Can you imagine what that would mean if we really believe that and act if we believe it? And the enemy knows it. He really knows it. So therefore he must keep us in limbo. When the moment we sin, he says to us, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a Christian. A Christian wouldn't do that. The funny thing is, before you do it, he would tell you because you're a Christian, you could do it because you're saved. <laughs> he tells you, you know you, you know, you belong to the Lord. So if you do this, you're still saved. And the moment you do it, he then tells you, but wait a minute. How you know you're saved? I want to remind you that we're dealing with an enemy that had known human history for over 2,000 years. And there's nothing you and I will ever do or face he is not aware of. There's somebody somewhere along he's met. And he knows how to masterfully bring us to that state where we're living in limbo and not certainty. So we can't enjoy the Christian life. Could you look for me at the passage of scripture, Romans chapter 14 and verse 17, which sums up what the Christian life is about. Look at Romans chapter 14 for just, and verse number 17. Romans chapter 14 verse 17 reads, For the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but what? Righteousness. But what? Peace. But what? Joy. That's the essence of what the Christian life is supposed to be. You're pursuing righteousness and while you're doing that, you enjoy peace and you have joy. That's what the Christian, that's the gist of the But if you're not too certain where you stand with God, how can you either know you have joy or peace? See, You are on the treadmill trying to work your way to heaven. You don't even realize you've got the righteousness and enjoy the righteousness of Christ. And I think the Apostle Paul was keenly aware that this was part of the devil's strategic plan in dealing with the believer to keep him in a place of doubt and uncertainty. And that is why I think the Apostle Paul spends so much time with this subject of eternal security. You know, I have said this and it might be worth saying again. It's impossible for any child to enjoy being in a home and enjoying the liberties and the freedoms and the privilege of being in the home if he's not too sure if he belongs to that home. I think you understand that. Joe can go into the refrigerator anytime he wants. Joe can take up anything I got at home. I miss what? I miss that. And he has the freedom and the liberty to do that. Because he knows he belongs to the home. But to be honest with you, if you came to my home, you can't just run in the refrigerator. Now, not that I would object to it, but I mean, you wouldn't feel like doing that. Why? You're, in a real sense, you're not part of the family. See? And what I'm saying to you is that God has given us blessings and privileges and opportunities. And God has given us things that belong to ourselves. Freedoms and liberties. And, ex and we cannot enjoy these things as long as we're not too sure if we really belong to him. And this is why this doctrine in my judgment. So much time is given. By the apostle Paul. Uh, to deal with this matter. So we come now. Tonight to another. 
of Paul's great deductions uh, that he gathers from what he's been teaching in the previous verses. He's been talking about God's pre-conversion love for the believer. And the Apostle Paul's argument is this. If this is what God, God had towards us when we were not saved, now that we are saved, how can you think it possible that a capricious God would now turn around and do the very opposite? If he did more for you when you were in an unsaved state, how can he do less for you now that you're saved? The Apostle Paul is using logic and reasoning. Again and again you'll find this is Paul's method. Always using logic and reasoning to come to some kind of a settled conclusion about our relationship with the Lord. So what Paul is saying to us here is that if God began something in your life, even in your pre-conversion days, his, his love was set upon you, and he's brought you to the point where you've now repented and you've, you've been justified and, and now you're reconciled. Paul's argument is, if he did this greater thing, he's going to do the lesser thing. And I'll point out to you what I mean by that. The greatest problem God had was how can he graft in the Gentiles into his plan? The grafting in was a difficult problem. But anybody who's ever done any kind of grafting would know one thing. If you're going to graft something to the tree, you cut the tree. That's the most difficult part to get the sap. And then you have to cut the lemon and spit it in. But once it is there and you cement it, all that happens is the life of the plant goes right. The biggest problem was to graft us in. But once we're in, we're in. That's the point. So he did the most difficult thing to graft us in. Now he's got us in. How can he do less for us? The Apostle Paul argues this matter. By the way, the language that Paul uses in Romans, there's a parallel to this in other passages in his epistles, not in the same words, but the same sentiment. Uh, look with me at Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 6 for just a minute. He says in, in 1 verse 6, he said, being confident of this very thing, that he which have begun a good work in you will do what? Perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Absolutely confident. If he started it, God's going to complete it. He also said the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13 and 14. He said, in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth. The gospel of your salvation. In whom also, after that you believe, you were what? Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Which is the what? The earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now you know anything about higher purchase? You're going at courts and you want a new stove, a new refrigerator, but you don't have the cash. So what you do, you go and make a down payment. And that down payment is the indication that you are going to complete the purchase. Now, unfortunately in Antigua, many people don't do that. So courts is always repossessing. <laughs> but not God, because once he makes a down payment, you can be sure he will finish the transaction. He's not like us. And that's why this doesn't have any force anymore. If we were as ethical as God is, we would read a passage. We would, have, we would say, you know what? I'm sealed. This is a down payment, so I'm sure the full purchase possession. But because we see how human beings have acted, we have doubts. Maybe God will do the same thing to us. 
So Paul is anxious that these Romans Christians understand the truth of how eternally secure they are and he uses a very forceful language uh, to do so. Notice again, going back to the Romans chapter 5, uh, notice how he begins his argument and the fact that he's going to use logic. He starts it off by saying in verse number 10, for if. That's how he begins his argument, for if. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to say, if God has already done this, for if God has already done this, this should inevitably follow. Again, the Apostle's method of using logic and reasoning to come to a conclusion in dealing uh, with these matters. In the Apostle Paul's way of thinking, it is ludicrous. It is God acting in a very capricious way. Uh, God is irrational if he's already done certain things and he doesn't follow through with the others. It doesn't make sense if God did this, he doesn't, done, doesn't deal with that. This is the Apostle Paul's way of thinking. So I want to point out tonight uh, and divide Paul's arguments into two parts. In the first part, uh, Paul says here in verse number 10, For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by his death of his son. That's the first part. He's going to take the first part, and then he's going to argue from there that the second part must happen if the first part has taken place. It's not if, but it must happen. And so Paul is going to talk about the results that will follow if the first premise that he has in verse number 10 is true. And he's convinced that if we once grasp the first premise, that we will begin to see the results that will inevitably follow, and therefore we will become more convinced of how secure we are in Christ uh, Jesus. So let's begin with the fact that he says that in the first case, that God reconciled us when we were what? Enemies. Now what does Paul mean when he describes us as enemy. What does this statement mean? Is the Apostle Paul saying that uh, God reconciled us when we had hostile feelings towards God? Is the Apostle Paul trying to say that uh, God uh, rescued us and reconciled us when we had this subjective hostility towards God? Is, Paul, is that what the Apostle Paul is saying? Now it must be admitted that's included in Paul's concept. But the primary thing, and we must not miss this, is that the Apostle Paul is not arguing about our subjected feelings towards God. The Apostle Paul is looking at this from the objective level of God. In other words, he's not saying that when God rescued us, uh, he rescued us even though we had these subjected, hateful, enemy feelings towards him. That's true. But it's not what he's arguing. The Apostle Paul is arguing that in so far as God is concerned, he saw us as in the position of enemies. There was no relationship between us and God. There was nothing we could do as enemies to move God to change his mind. What the Apostle Paul is emphasizing is that reconciliation is first a part where God acts first to, recon to reconcile himself to man. So it's not about man being reconciled to God that, you know, I feel sorry about that and therefore I turn to God. That's not what it is. The Apostle Paul is saying that when we are in the position where God saw us as legal enemies, legal enemies, this God took the first act 
to reconcile you to himself. You didn't do it. That's the point. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing that if when you were in a state of an enemy, when God saw you as an enemy, and you, you didn't even change to make God to do anything. That when God saw you, even as an enemy, say, God move and send his son to die for you. Even before you started loving God. And of course, once you understand this great love of God, your whole mindset changed towards him. But notice, it is he, first of all, that made the first move. He sent his son to die. When you were still an enemy. I don't think we fully understand what that means. Let me use an illustration. A man comes at the door and he cusses you out. You're his enemy. He tells you everything. He's at the door. But you know what you do? You don't respond the way he wants you to respond. You respond to him in kindness and you show him love and kindness. Now that's the man at the door. But you got children in the house. Are you going to treat them less than the man at the door? So Paul is saying, that's why we were, we were like the man at the door. We were cussing God. We were against God. But yet, God showed us kind. Now we brought in to be at your children. He's going to treat you, the child, less than he treat the guy on the outside. This is what the Apostle Paul is trying to say to these believers. If you can guess, grasp the idea that positionally and legally and forensically, you were the enemy of God. And when you were in that state, God acted and sent his son to die for you while you were in that state. It all begins with God. All begins with God. And until you understand that if it is true that it all begins with God, it will all end with God. So that should give you this, this, this matter of security as a believer. So Paul is... Trying to point out here uh, the active role of God when we were in the enemy state. And he's saying that it is God that sent his son to die while you're in that state of being an enemy. If you can get hold of that, uh, you will understand why Paul said, If when you were an enemy, God sent his son to die for you, now you're his child, you will be saved by his life. He's going to do... He's already done the greatest thing, which is how to change you, how to graft you in. That was his puzzle. How does a God, a holy God, make you righteous? How does a holy God pardon a sinner? How does a holy God take a sinner and put him into his family? That was the difficult part. The much easier part is giving you eternal life once he's done the work at the beginning. So Paul is emphasizing the fact that um, God saw us as his enemy, and that was our position legally and forensically and spiritually. And while we were in that state, God sent his son to die for us. In other words, it was not our attitude of change towards God that moved him to send his son to die. Before our attitude actually changed to him, he had already sent his son to die for us. So if now our attitude has changed towards him and we've come into the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul is asking the question, how can you think that God would do less for you as a person who is now inside rather than outside? The other thing I want to point out to you 
this whole matter of reconciliation that the Bible talks about, uh, if you notice in the passage, in verse number 10, it says, If we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. I want to emphasize that we must never ever lose our understanding and our appreciation for the value of the death and the blood of Christ. Never. The, the emphasis here is that we were not reconciled because God sent his son. If his son had come and he had not died, we would still not be reconciled. We are not reconciled because of Christ's teaching. We are not reconciled because of Christ's example. What brings about our reconciliation is the death and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his death that brought about our reconciliation. It is his death that changed God's attitude towards us. It's not what we did to change God. It is his death. That put God in a position where his whole demeanor towards us could change. Why? His holiness was vindicated. His righteousness was vindicated. And now he can have a different response to us, but only as a result of the death of his son. Your security, I repeat, is not dependent upon you. It is dependent on how God has received his son. What his son has done for you. By your trusting in what the son has done, is that is what makes you secure. As long as you keep looking at yourself and ask yourself, well, did I do good enough today? You know, did I read my Bible today? Did I pray today? Did I go to church this week? As long as you keep a file of that, and this is what you're depending on to get a right relation with God, and security, you'll never get it. Because I know people who do pray more than you. I know people who read the Bible more than you. There's nobody that prays more than the Muslims. Five times a day. Five times a day. You ever hear the shofar? 12 o'clock, wherever they are, they fall down and they pray. See? You know Christians who pray five times a day? See? See, it's not that. It all has to do with the death of God's son. That's the basis of our security in Christ. So Paul is emphasizing here that this, uh, our security is dependent on the fact of what God has done in reconciling us. We haven't reconciled ourselves to God. It is God that has brought about this reconciliation. By the way, if you look with me at Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment. Chapter 5. And look at verse number 18. We're told how this, this reconciliation that Paul talks about took place. He says... And all things are of God, who have what? Reconciled us to himself. By whom? By Jesus Christ. Again, notice that this reconciliation is something that God does. It's his acting. But the basis for his reconciliation, which has to do with a restored relationship, by the way. It is all as a result of God acting because of the death of his son. So when it comes to this whole matter of reconciliation, it is a divine act on God's part based on the death of his son that brings us into a right relation with God. It has nothing to do with our effort and our merits. The Apostle Paul is, is pounding this away. And then if you notice in chapter 5, verse 19 to 21, it tells us exactly how this happened, how this reconciliation took place. Look at it again. He said in, in verse number 19, to wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. Notice that God through Christ, doing what? 
not imputing their trespasses, not putting their trespasses to their account, not holding their sin against them. That's step number one. Step number two. Look what he said in verse number 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. That is why God doesn't hold our sin against us. He died in our place. He took our sin. See, that's the point he's making. He did not impute our sin to ourselves. Didn't take it to our account. He put it to the account of Christ. But he doesn't stop there. Notice the third step. That we might be made what? The righteousness of God in him. He now gives us the righteousness of Christ to our account. What an exchange that is. He takes our sin upon him. And then he gives us his righteousness. Put it in your account. And that's why the Bible he says much more now. Being reconciled by the death of his son. Paul's argument is. You can be absolutely sure. That you be saved by his life. And it has to do with the, the whole matter of the final redemption of the believer. So the great problem was how to justify man. The great problem was how to reconcile man. But once that is done, the justification and reconciliation, everything else follows as much easier than that. Because that was the great problem that God had to solve. And by the way, you put your mind to this task and ask yourself how your holy God could ever, ever justify the sinner. Declare him righteous. How, how is it possible to do that? Can you solve that problem? I can't solve it. But God did. And it all revolves around his son. That's why he's called the wisdom of God in, in the scriptures. So the manward side always follows the Godward side. It's never the manward first and then the Godward. It's always the Godward and then the manward. See? And this is why Paul is emphasizing that your security in Christ is dependent upon what God has done. You haven't reconciled yourself to God. It is God that will reconcile you to himself. See? You haven't justified yourself. It is God that has justified you. See? And this is Paul's point. And if God has done that, Paul is saying, how is it conceivable to think that you do less in terms of your future? See? So your attitude to God changes as you learn what God has done for you. And then the last thing I want to cover uh, this evening is that having reconciled us by the death of his son, Paul said now much more being reconciled by the death of his son, we shall be saved by his life. Now you remember, uh, I think it was last week I talked about the three tenses of salvation. That's why the, the uh, I think it was Herbert W. Armstrong would take a verse like this and say, see, you're she, she not saved, you're going to be saved. And that is why he said in his writings, nobody is saved. Because you come to a pastor like this, and he said, you shall be saved. By his life in the future. But if you go through the Bible, if you don't understand the different phases of conversion and, and redemption, you'll always end up in a problem like that. We're saved from the guilt of sin when we put our faith and trust in Christ. We're saved from the power of sin throughout this life. And then we're saved from the very presence of sin. They're the three tenses, past, present, and future. But you are eternally saved the moment you put your faith and trust in Christ. You're being saved through sanctification. And you'll be ultimately saved when you're redeemed and taken out of this life. But the end, where it starts, it will end. In other words, it's all part of one package. 
So he's talking here about the ultimate redemption of the believer, the ultimate salvation of the believer. And uh, I want to point out one little technicality I think is significant that you might miss in this passage. Look at uh, chapter 10, chapter 5 and verse number 10 again. So for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled by the death of his son. Could I say to you that is an improper translation? The word by does not occur anywhere in the Greek manuscript. You know what it really is? What it has here is that we shall be saved in his life. Not by his life, but in his life. The word in the Greek language, by the way, it means in the state or the condition. To be in a, in a condition, in a state. And let me show you the importance of that. See, what the Apostle Paul is trying to say, look, before you came to trust in Jesus Christ, you were outside the life of Christ. The moment you put your faith in, you are now brought into the life of Christ. So you're in Him. That's what he's trying to say. So if you are in Him, you were out of Him before, but now you're in Him, Paul is saying, but how can you be not secure? Small technicality, but that's profound truth that the Apostle Paul is getting across to the believer that you're already in Christ. Now tell me how you're going to get out of Him. If God put you in Him, how are you going to get out of Him? That's why Jesus said, no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then he added, no man is able to pluck them out of my, my hand because I am in the Father and you are in me. You're wrapped up with Him whether you like it or not. And if you're genuinely saved, you are eternally saved. That's what Paul is trying to get across to you. See? But there's something else I think I need to draw your attention to. And I think it makes absolute great sense. If a man's death can save you, no, he's no longer dead. Don't tell me his life can't, can't secure you. Now, you think about myself just a moment. If his death saved you, can you imagine now he's no longer dead and he's got a life and he can't, he can't keep you and save you? And uh, give me, Let me use an example why I think this is important. Here's the problem that we have. We come to faith and trust in Christ and we believe in him and we ask forgiveness and pardon. But as we go along our pilgrim way, guess what happens? We mess up. We sin. We do things that are wrong. The question is now, is this sinning undone what I did there? That's the whole issue. Now that I have sinned, does it mean that I have undone? Might I go back here and get saved again? And I'll tell you what will happen to you if you get saved here again. When you get down here again, it can happen to you. And you can have to go back and get saved again. So you're like a seven-day Adventist. Twelve times, thirteen times, fourteen times. You get baptized every time. Ask him how many times you got saved. A dozen times. Because every time he falls into sin, he's no longer saved. He got to get back here and get, and then he got to get rebaptized. He might drown one of these days. But let, let me point it out to you. Now, if in his death, his death took care of my sin. But now he's alive. What's he doing for me that now I'm alive? And this is where the book of Hebrews has such a profound statement. And I want to look at Hebrews chapter 7 verse 22 to verse 25 for just a moment. 
And I want to follow the argument that is used here in the book of Hebrews chapter, chapter 7, verse 22 to verse 25. Listen to what he says in verse 22. Much, so much more was Jesus made a surety of a better covenant, a better testament. And there truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. He's comparing now the Melchizedek priesthood that Christ had, the eternal priesthood with the Aaronic priesthood that had a plethora of, of, uh, of priests. Uh, didn't, every priest would die again, get another priest. But this one, listen what he says. But this man, because he continueth ever, have an unchangeable priesthood. In other words, there's no other priest but he. Because he doesn't die. Now get what he says here. Wherefore, he's able to do what? Save them to what? It means to the very end. Why? Because he ever what? Liveth to make it. So if you worry about your sin, okay, you hear, you got your sins forgiven. You came to faith in Christ, you walk in Christ, you, you, you got sins. What the Bible is saying to you that those sins he intercedes for. He's alive. See, he's not a dead priest. So you don't have to go back there. The sins you commit after, he is interceding for you. Therefore, he can save you unto the end because he's alive interceding for every sin you commit. That's what the Apostle Paul says. If you are reconciled by his death, see, you will be completely saved by his life. Why? He's alive. Now, this is where it is so important to get hold of this kind of a biblical truth. That's why I say to you, if we really truly get it hold of it and really believe it, we will be the happiest person in the world. You know what it is to, to say, I, I'm, a, I'm God's child. I belong to him. Imagine what it is to say that. It's like saying I am, I am Obama's child. I am, I am Trump's child. What that means all that he has. You have. And that's why I think the Apostle Paul is so concerned. And spent so much meticulous time. Stringing one argument after another. Piling it up. With such an overwhelming force. So that we will finally grasp our security and begin to enjoy the Christian life. And by the way, John understood this, but he did use the same language. If you look at me at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8 and 9. This work that Christ continues to do for us. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, John says... If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we what? We make him a liar, and the truth is not in us. But go down. My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have what? An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. This is the same argument that John is using. The believer doesn't have to get saved again because he sins. What the believer has to do is to confess his sin because Christ is providing the intercessory role 
as our great high priest interceding for our sins that we commit after our conversion. And that's what his life is about. And if you look with me at Jude chapter, well, there's only one chapter in Jude, one verse. Verse 24. He says, Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to do what? Present you faultless before the presence of its glory with exceeding joy. This is the kind of confidence that Jude had. The Apostle Paul adds here much more. He talked about being justified. And he says, because we're justified, we shall be saved from the wrath to come. There's no wrath for us. But now he adds, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved eternally. Absolutely. By the life of the Christ. If his death can save you, don't tell me his life can't keep you. His death is much stronger than his life. And if he did the the hardest thing, which was to deal with the sin problem before God to make it righteous. To put it another way, it was easy cruising for him to deal with the sin problem that you need to confess before the Father. So the Apostle Paul is trying to establish once again, as far as the believer is concerned, this is another argument. You are secure in Christ. You are eternally secure. Secure in Christ. I, I know I've labored this point, and some of you are probably saying, well, Pastor, you know, um, you, you know you, you're stuck here. I'm not stuck here, friend. I'm just trying to show you how important this doctrine is and why it is so important. And I'm saying to you, none of you in here will ever know Christian joy, never know Christian peace until this whole question is settled. What about every morning you got up, you're wondering if your mommy's your mommy. And your daddy's your daddy. Think about that for just a moment. How, 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 what kind of life you can live? You can't go to say, hey, that's my dad. Because you don't know if your daddy's your daddy. <laughs> but if you know that you're truly a child of God, you can say with great boldness, I belong to him. He's my father. Let us not make this truth something that just remains in our head. Help us really grasp what this means to us. The enemy knows how to keep us, to rob us of our joy. But thank God he's met his match in the Apostle Paul, who's able to take his time to meticulously go to detail by detail. Because Paul wants us to enjoy this life. He wants us to have peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He has to let us know that we are righteous before God because it's imputed to us. If we get hold of this, it would have a transformative effect upon your life. You see, what I, I, I talked to you that consciousness about what giving people hope. Tell me any medical doctor that give it that kind of hope. And that's why we have an opportunity to ministry. Let us take the opportunity, let us use it. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us more about the believer's union with Christ. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230. 
or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.